What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. So, we're wondering how many of these guys did we hire? Because it's not just like you submit an application and you get admitted in, right? So it's a lot more nuanced than that. You kind of have to like know someone. It's all about who you know, essentially. And also like how, in this next, or the first chapter of Discrete Silence, kind of a small summary of who exactly are the type of people are they helping here? Are they just helping general SS officers, uh, Gestapo officers? Are they helping regular German soldiers that are classified as the Nazi parties? Like, what are we talking about here? And like, so it kind of goes into how they were silent about it. And it talks about how they would bring over these immigrants, these immigrant looking people, right? People that were like, oh, we're from the refugee camps from Europe and we're we're being liberated from the American forces and, you know, we've, we've gotten out from either Hitler or Stalin or whoever, take your but they would bring these people over, right? And it kind of had like a twofold effect. One, a lot of these people were not just innocent civilian immigrants. Yes, a bunch of them were, right? But a lot of them are paramilitary groups that were operating, you know, extremist right-wing groups that are working with either Nazi collaborators a lot of the time, or we're just very, very brutal people in general, right? It doesn't matter what side they're on. Are you going to invite someone to your house that has held a gun in his hand and shot women and children? So so that's one effect, right? Just you don't know who these people really are. And the two, they would also have voice now in the United States, right? You have these people that will come over in mass, and then that way they will pitching their voices together, especially the extremist groups, and get themselves heard in Congress, and then they have their own congressmen, and they get more, you know, appropriations to here, here, and there, there, so that way, if the, whatever government agency is like, oh, we want to have more appropriations here, some journalists like, I need more appropriations here, it's all about, kind of like, how you do politically as well, if you need this or that, you need to have some support of congressmen in order to have any of these supplies and resources given to you or whatever. So you need a reason to, right? So if you just have all these poor immigrants come over and they're battered up, and I'm sure a lot of them are, but they will definitely, like the Theodore Roosevelt quote, never let a good crisis go to waste. Some of them, once again, known Nazi collaborators. It kind of summarizes about uh, Reinhard Galen, who is basically, we're going to find out, is like the CIA top Nazi, essentially. And then after the war, instead of putting him in jail, we put him back in Germany and actually head of... um, the German spy industry in Pulak, which is still there today. Pulak was basically the, the Langley of Virginia. Well, as we kind of say, oh, Langley, you think of CIA. Oh, you say Pulak, and you think of the German CIA. Reinhard Galen kind of sold this whole thing about, oh, I have all these these network connections in East Europe and West Russia, and said, oh, I have all these spy connections, and if you just hire me, then I can utilize all of them, and we can use it to, you know, work against the Soviets. And he, what he kind of summarizes up in this first chapter is that it didn't really pay out. They were almost like, sometimes he suggests non-existent, in some cases that they just like weren't even there he didn't actually have any network no reliable you know network of spies and it actually had a 
counter effect at the same time because you try to have all these spire networks out there they actually get infiltrated by the soviets so the soviets have double agents in there and you have what's called in the cia term a blowback right so blowback is just read it from here this impact is what is known in spy jargon as blowback meaning unexpected and negative effects at home that result from covert operations overseas. So you have some sort of activity or something that you do, and it ends up not only having like something that was unexpected, but something that went against what you were even trying to accomplish, something that like was a detriment to what you did. So in some of these cases, well, we have all these spy networks in East Europe. Oh, but they're infiltrated by the Soviets, so what did we really accomplish here? If anything, they got more intel on us. And also, not at the same time, there are FOIA, which is the Freedom of Information Act. You can apply for these. It's a way for civilians in order to get their hands on some of these documents that would otherwise be unknown to us or restricted from us. So I'm going to be reciting some of these in here. I'll try to post them in the show notes as well. So if you want to follow up on any of these about how this is sourced and stuff like that. This is a really well-sourced book, by the way. Usually tell like a good source book if they have a nice fat bibliography. The source notes are like really well done. A lot of sites, but it's been revealed. And I'll quote it from the book here. Until recently, the U.S. media could usually be counted on to maintain a discreet silence about immigrant leaders with Nazi backgrounds accused of working for the CIA. According to declassified records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, several mass media organizations in this country, USA, at times working in discreet concert with the CIA, became instrumental in promoting Cold War myths that transformed certain exiled Nazi collaborators of World War II into freedom fighters. So... Isn't that kind of ring a bell? Freedom fighters, rebel fighters, resistance fighters. But in this case, the media was portraying Nazi collaborators, right-wing extremists, right-wing or not, just violent groups in general, and calling them freedom fighters, right? One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist, so to speak. I'm not sure exactly. I'm only in the first uh, 100 pages of the book, and he actually hasn't mentioned it by name. Obviously, he's talking about it. Operation Mockingbird, right? Even in the House Committee assassinations in the 70s, they asked William Colby, do you have operatives that write for American newspapers? And he's like, uh, yes, we've had guys on payroll that work for American newspapers. Do you have men that work for the CIA, work in American television? And the director of the CIA leans in and goes, I'd like to get that in an uh, executive session. I thought that it was a matter of uh, real concern that planted stories intended to serve a national purpose abroad um, came home and were circulated here and believed here because uh, this would mean that the CIA could manipulate the news in the United States by channeling it through some foreign country. And we're looking at that very carefully. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA who are contributing to a major circulation American journal. We do have people who submit pieces to other to American journals. Do you have any people paid by the CIA who are working for television networks? This, I think, gets into the kind of uh, getting into the details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into an executive session. Uh, 
Right. So he doesn't actually answer that question. So he just said, yes, we have people that work for newspaper. Do people that work for TVs? I don't want to answer that right now. Okay, it was either a yes or no question, right? So, but we'll see what this book gets into here. We'll be able to source how we know that the CIA and the media are working together. And once again, I'll post a lot of these links in the bottoms. And that a lot of these reasons that we're even associating with a lot of these people is communism so with the downfall of fascism almost immediately overnight is the rise of communism and how what is america going to do that oh unchecked soviet aggression oh man they're gathering all these satellites around them and extending the communist influence and all this stuff not to say that communism isn't bad or that stalin wasn't bad but we're, we're gonna have to see how a lot of this stuff and these excuses kind of like it's a very vicious circle that you'll be begin to see who's doing wrong here once again like the soap opera You'll be able to see, like, why does that person not like that person? And what? Oh, that person really did wrong in there. Oh, but don't forget that they did that there. Oh, but the. So, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, who punched first? But once again, the context is going to help you make a better informed decision about how you feel and understand the situation. And he also kind of leaves, like, a very uh, kind of brief description of, like, how the paper trail is kind of, like, orchestrated in order to kind of get a lot of these guys across. And it's all about, once again, who you know. You have another right guy in the right department or the right kinds of people in the right department because a lot of this stuff is coming top down, right? The people at the top are looking very specific people and they're telling the people here and the people here and it kind of branches out and they're going to be able to ones in this bureaucratic trail of checks and balances that can be thwarted and circumvented essentially in order to get certain assets to cross. I'm just going to quote here now. So some people would personally intervene, and we're going to learn about George F. Kennan. He's a guy that shows up a lot here in this book. He's just going to mention in passing here, but then they always kind of expand on his role later. So George F. Kennan, they would intervene on certain people's behalf, leaving behind a trail of telegrams. Then secret visas had to be arranged, and the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the INS, had to be quietly informed, producing still more records, Transfer for Hilger, which is a German they're talking about specifically here, aboard a U.S. military aircraft was necessary to get him out of Germany. Later, new identification and a top secret security clearance had to be obtained for Hilger before he began regular work in Washington, D.C. And he says, Despite the fragmented nature here of the evidence left behind these activities, it is now possible to reassemble much of the story of Hilger and other collaborators. So even though it's kind of just like a, oh, a small little telegram here, like, watch out for this guy. And then, oh, a little visa passport, maybe it's like a guy with like similar exact same name where it's like a change name and you can kind of just tell it's like oh well, this is this guy because he was not at this trial or was at this trial and he's not there anymore but now obviously he's a visa following the breadcrumbs essentially kind of like build this story of who is doing this essentially and if you even think about it about hiring nazis and one of the things that truman talked about was no deals with nazis total defeat but then you have a lot of these guys guys in the state department that are essentially going around that directive hire the ones we may need to fight russians later on so a lot of these guys will weasel their way around bureaucratically in order to have a lot of this circumvented right clear clear we're not going to deal with nazis pretty sure he didn't mean except the ones you need to work on your rockets or they were good propagandists and by the end of world war ii when they're looking for a lot of these guys the cic which is the army counterintelligence service the one that i mentioned earlier kind of just stopped hunting nazis that's what the book kind of makes it seem like they kind of just stopped and was more focused on hunting down commies and so there's a blurb here at the bottom also about the waffen ss they had duties of being hitler's personal bodyguards to serving as custodians and executioners at concentration camps but 
but as the war goes on, it just talks about how they kind of had to conscript a lot of guides, and a lot of those guys that were in that unit were saying, like, oh, I wasn't a part of a lot of that stuff. And even it's known after a war is over that, I don't know, just growing up, I didn't really think of Dr. Mangle, the mad scientist sadist, would be a prize for winning World War II. Counterintelligence Service and the Air Force and the CIA all fighting over Nazis, literally Nazis. They're fighting over like, no, we want that guy. No, we want that guy. And they have all these paper trails of people eyeing them and them moving their pieces on the bureaucratic trust board trying to get them into this or that agency for this or that, you know, reason or whatever. But it's kind of just, just wonder like, where, where do we draw the line on some of this stuff? Because we're going to find out like, it wasn't just where the tag, I wasn't just roped into this or something. No, you did something for sure. It also talks briefly about how remember those intel group galen talked about reinhard galen how he had those east european russian area of like spy intel and frank wisner who will learn about also a lot more cia operative leader of a lot of clandestine operations had been trying to demoralize the other enemy right you stage all these accidents and destroy their infrastructure and harass the population and just eventually try to stir the inside of the country right make it just like really unbearable to live there but it just also talks about how once again the operation mockingbird how the tactics they were using overseas eventually started to be used here in america and even according to the national security council records wisner began large-scale programs designed to bring thousands of anti-communist exiles to the united states as a means of rewarding them for secret operations overseas and to train others for guerrilla warfare against the east bloc countries so we're bringing all these extremists over here to train them to do guerrilla warfare and then sending back over to russia and the agency simultaneously funneled millions of dollars into advertising and stage media, so tax money, inside the United States during the same period with support for these overseas refugee liberation projects as a primary theme. But like, oh, we're saving all these people. Oh, look, we're, look at all the nice people that we saved. They brought over here. Oh, we didn't tell you that a lot of them agreed that they want to go back or they want to help train like other militant groups here, essentially. Oh, we're using your money to also paint some of these guerrilla violent fighters as uh, refugees, you know, uh, re resistance fighters. Doesn't that just ring of modernism? Like, this is the 40s here. Um, I'm going to quote here. Just, I mean, you can hear it in our modern media today. Before the presidential campaign of 1952, the agency sharply expanded its media operations with a multi-million dollar publicity campaign inside the United States designed to legitimize expanded U.S. Cold War operations in Europe. This program was guided by a theory known as liberationism. Oh no, bad dictator. So the people want to be free, and oh look, the these rebels kind of just popped out of nowhere with a bunch of guns and money, and oh look, they can topple their regime now. Iraq, Libya, tried to be Syria. It's 2018, so probably Iran soon. You kind of just see over and over the media, the CIA, portraying X or Y country as trying to liberate themselves. When a lot of the times that you see those liberating, oh, the, the guys you hear in our media being portrayed as the, the good guys, which in a lot of these cases, as you will see, are violent extremist people one way or another. So just because our government is funding them does not mean to like invite them over for dinner or throw your weight behind them or use your taxpayer money to fund them. And so an important part of the strategy held that certain exiled fascist leaders left over from World War II should be regarded as democratic freedom fighters against the USSR. The CIA's propaganda campaign inside the United States was clearly illegal. But the agency concealed its ties to the effort and the enterprise prospered. And 
I don't, I don't think this book is actually even going to mention this. Go look at some of the 1950s and look at the Time magazine's uh, articles and just you'll just see like, oh, XY is bad or XY is even good, right? We're not going to go after this guy if the U.S. likes him. The founder of Time magazine is this guy named Henry Luce. And as we're about to find out very soon, one of the big head honchos of the USS, which is the Office of Strategic Services, which was the CIA basically during World War II, and he was the second director of the CIA, which is Alan Dulles. And Alan Dulles and Henry Luce both kind of come from prominent families. They're both like kid friends. So if you ever think, and this is how you have to think of the media, right? A lot of these people are best friends. I'm, I'm talking they have family ties or freaking grandpas work together and built X or Y steel or finance business or whatever. Do you think Henry Luce is going to have a bad story about Alan Dulles or what he does in his job at ever in his lifetime? No. If anything, you can think that maybe they'd even have some of the same worldview. And so I don't think this book is going to go into that, but I'm going to talk about another book in the future, uh, The Devil's Chessboard, and that's all about Alan Dulles. It's probably even too early to talk about him, but I just think he's like fascinating. I don't think he's a great guy, but it's definitely some of the things that he did do kind of make history jump out of the pages alive at you and he's actually that personal connection that I actually I have to this story is that where I'm from I'm from Missouri City Texas it's a city right next to Sugarland Texas that's like a bigger suburb that's more well known it's outside of Houston where I'm from there is a, I went to Elkins High School but a lot of the teachers that founded Elkins all came from Dulles High School. So Dulles High School is actually named after John Foster Dulles, which was the older brother of Alan Dulles. John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State for President Eisenhower, and he was also like a diplomat. Before then, he was a diplomat of the Versailles Treaty, and that's this is one of the things that really captivated me is that when I was in high school, you always hear about Germany after World War One having the war reparations slapped on them. They had to pay all this money back. John Maynard Keynes just predicted it was going to take, you know, forever or whatever to essentially pay off this debt. He's a famous economist at this time. People trace a lot of the dominoes effect of why World War Two even happened is because of this particular part of the Versailles Treaty that was just impossible, that Germany had to mass print all this money. There was just mass inflation and that the money, the cash, itself was so worthless that people were using his firewood and stuff like that but what I didn't know until quite a while later when I was out of high school actually and so oh just just to wrap it back up teachers work for there my aunt actually graduated from the high school in the 1970s and one of my best friends actually just worked at the school last year and I also swam against the team as well like I just yeah it's a very cool school in, in the same school district so you have John Foster Dulles that wrote that particular clause in the Versailles Treaty, the uh, War Reparations Clause. He was up there with uh, Robert Lansing, who was the Secretary of State for President Woodrow Wilson. Actually, Woodrow Wilson was both Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles's Princeton University professor. Okay, so that's how tight knit of a circle these kind of guys run around with. Uh, Robert Lansing, Secretary of State, literally one of the most powerful people in the United States government. They called him Uncle Bert. Okay, that, that's how close the Dulles brothers were with this guy. Yeah, and I just think it's so funny that I never knew that I had to learn that particular thing in high school. And never did we once learn that, oh, you had to remember, oh, war prices caused mass inflation in Germany. I remember all that. But they never said, oh, just down the road is the name of the guy who wrote that particular thing. Hmm, isn't that interesting? They're also named after uh, the Dulles Airport. It's also named after them as well. That's where most people know. But yeah, down here where I'm particularly from, that's why you would know Dulles. It's because of the high school. High school just down the road is named after the guy who had the nice little domino put in there for starting World War II and among other things. Um, and his younger brother is the second director of the CIA. And as we'll find out in not just this episode, but many other episodes 
did a lot of shady things. So yeah, we're gonna get into that here and about how the Alan Dulles is just really big key characters, I think, and a lot of understanding what government does and the rule of like intelligence services and stuff like that too. Like what does the CIA do? What does the FBI do? What it's like the bureaucracy and the politics behind of like what goes on with these agencies. Here we have John Foster and Alan Dulles. John Foster's the older one and Alan Dulles the CIA director that we'll hear about more in this book is the uh, younger one. And it's interesting that we have a, a time in history because Allen was the director of the CIA when and he was Secretary of State. So we have two brothers who are in charge of the overt operations of the government and the covert operations of the government. And as you'll see, uh, maybe this streamline of connection and bureaucracy is not such a good idea. They definitely got stuff done, but... Yeah, and to kind of start off, if we're talking about Nazis, we're thinking about war crimes, right? We're thinking about bad men who did bad things, Holocaust, uh, these types of things, crimes against humanity. So in the book, he wants to explicitly point out what in our language, what in our ideals constitutes as a war crime. Quote, crimes against humanity, states the Allied Control Council Law Number 10 of 1945, are atrocities and offenses including but not limited to murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation, imprisonment, torture, rape, or other inhuman acts committed against any civilian population or persecutions on political, racial, or religious grounds. So this is the formal foundations upon which they're trying all these war criminals. And especially during a wartime, it's kind of hard to, I mean, obviously there's the guys with the actual guns in the hand, but we're talking about the guys who told those guys with the guns to go shoot the other people who's also at fault. And it's kind of hard what the book was saying about how to try so many people involved in this systematic extermination of people is on a scale that's unfathomable, especially if we're talking about a lot of people that are kind of hard to track and pinpoint anyone from the SS party, the Secret Service police, or just uh, anybody involved with being, you know, being a Nazi, a politician, or even just people that were in parts of the German industry that were involved with slave labor or breeding weapons. And it's kind of hard, once again, to kind of track a lot of these people and really nail them down for like, well, you know, here's you on paper or here's you on tape telling your officers or your soldiers to kill them. There's a, a paper trail that maybe you can find or cover up. Not just the Nazis were anti, I mean, obviously they were taking a lot of the Slavic, Eastern European peoples, Jews. They were also intensely anti communist too extremely and when they invaded russia in, the, in 1941 it was to say the least i mean if you just look at the numbers alone from the western front to the eastern front it's a whole other realm of casualties and human suffering that once again like and like i just said is hard to fathom and we'll talk a lot about this Eitzengruppen, once again, bad at German, mobile execution squads, and not just from soldiers killed in combat, but soldiers that were captured after combat and civilians as well. The book is saying here, quote, the evidence indicates that three and four million captured, just the captured ones, Soviet soldiers were intentionally starved to death in German POW camps from 1941 and 1944. Three to four million people in the span of three years. And at least a million people and a half Jews were exterminated inside Nazi-occupied Soviet territory, mainly through mass shootings, but also through gassing, deportation to extermination camps, looting, destruction of villages, hangings, and torture. Oh, and here's the big one. Still quoting here. The generally accepted figure for all Soviet war dead is 20 million human beings, about 15% of the population of the country at the time. 20 million people. In the span of what they're saying, here's about three three years. 
20 million people, 15% of your population gone. And it says here, quote, but the destruction was so vast that even this number can only be an educated guess. So, 1941 to 1944. How long is that from here from now? Almost 80 years. It's almost 80 years. There's people still alive that were alive during that time. 80 years is a blink of an eye in terms of a history, right? And literally invaded all the way. Because Russia's a big place, right? It's not just like we got here. They went all the way through. Because the Germans were looking like they were going to knock them out by Christmas time. Three years. 20 million people. Gosh. And you wonder why they don't like it when... NATO is pushing so far up to their border. Doesn't that kind of remind them of something, maybe? But, once again, history context. Uh, I'm not saying or Putin is like a lovable guy or not a lovable guy or not, but I'm saying is that can you see when people or why other people react the way they did? History, 80 years ago, invaded in, 20 million people, dead. And especially famine is the political weapon. I mean, that's the easiest way. You don't have to pay for the bullets. You don't have to pay for the gas or the propellant to burn them. Just stop them. Just don't do anything with them. Just keep them here, point guns at them, and just wait until they die. The Nazis just had this campaign of carrying all of these Slavic people. And you hear about massacres that happened in the West as well during this war. Some of the big ones that he lists is the Dichi quote here. But inside the Nazi-occupied USSR, there were not just one or two Ladises, there were hundreds. Mass killings of the Ladis type took place at Rosada, 372 dead. Vicini, about 200 dead, mainly women and children. Dolina, 469, again, mainly women and children. To name only three, in the Osveya district in the northern Belarusia alone, in the single month of March of 1943, a single month, the Nazis and collaborist troops devastated some 158 villages. So if we're talking about a villages two to five hundred people and they did a hundred and fifty eight of those in a month according to the times of london correspondent alexander worth quote all able-bodied men were deported as slaves and all the women children and old people murdered <sighs> kind of disheartening to read it but once again we need to understand who were the people that were starting this stuff who were the people that were standing off on this stuff who were the people writing the ink on the paper let alone the guy who just had the gun in his hand. And just have to ask yourself, are we going to hire these kind of guys too that, that do all this kind of stuff, that were okay with it, that believed in this, that they needed to exterminate these types of people? And just to continue here, I'm quoting again, it was in the East, however, that such killings reached a truly frenzied level. At Odessa, for example, the Nazis and the Romanian collaborators destroyed 19,000 Jews and other so-called subversive elements in a single night. 19,000 people in a single night in retaliation for a partisan bombing that had killed about a dozen Romanian soldiers. Axis troops rounded up another 40,000 Jews and executed them during the following week. So 19,000 in a day, 40,000 in a week. That's almost 60,000 people in a week. The SS used gas wagons to sign as Red Cross vans to kill about 7,000 women and children in the south near Krasnodar. At least 100,000 Jews and Slavs were slain at Babi Yar near Kiev and so on and so on and so on. And it literally says that. Remember, one of the biggest campaigns was just mass famine, just mass starving as many people as you can. It just talks about this General Manstein and how instantly, any time they got a hold of any captured Soviet political officers or leaders, just execute them, civilians, execute them. Anyone who participated against or tried or thought about participating against German forces, executed. Entire villages, executed, taken out. 
says, quote, German soldiers who had committed what would otherwise be crimes under Germany's own military code were not to be prosecuted if their acts had taken place, quote, out of bitterness against carriers of the Jewish Bolshevik system. So there's a lot of, hey, if you're doing it against Jewish Slavic people, it's okay. Manstein, the general, the guy who was orders of this kind of policy, quote, Manstein later claimed at his trial for war crimes that the starvation order had, quote, escaped my memory entirely. He was convicted by a British tribunal and sentenced to 18 years in prison, but he obtained a release in 1952 after serving fewer than three years of his term. The former field marshal eventually became advisor to the West German Defense Ministry. So once again, orders of mass starvation and, oh, nope, don't remember that. You're hired. And just the logistics, because, you know, we just said 60,000, almost 60,000 people in a week. That's systematic. That's machinery operating here. Like, that's very pretty. How do you even move that many bodies? How do you even, like, get that many people around to murder that many people, let alone what to do after with all those people? You have the Weimarked and the SS commanders, and they have all these teams devoted to all these mass exterminations. And what you're going to come to find out that a lot of these people doing these mass exterminations are not just the Germans, a lot of the Germans are giving the orders, but a lot of these right extremist groups and some POWs that were kind of like turned with a gun to your head, joined or die, or uh, oh, Slavic people, like, oh, it's too good for a German, we'll have some of these other people do it. And that's like, once again, the not of representative German people, that's just some of these ideologies of some of these Nazi people. Once again, I said this earlier, uh, Weimarked and the SS commanders, they developed these exclusive SS teams, one called the Eitzengruppen, and their subgroups, the uh, Sonderkommandos and the Eitzengkommandos. These commandos are often specialized Nazi-trained propaganda and terror teams where some of the first people that were in, like invaded with Germany into the USSR. Because like I said earlier, they wanted to take them down very quickly and it didn't really work out. So you are not only hi hiring these people from this area that they're invading, but they're also kind of like incorporating them into their own like special units and using them against like as their own people. And also leaving them behind as they move along to kind of establish like intel networks essentially, right? People that they trust that they can send messages through or intel about this or this position or ammunitions or logistics. And as we'll come to see that a lot of these early Nazi turned guys and intel networks left behind would eventually be reincorporated in, into the CIA essentially at some point. A lot of some of these assets, the one that we talked about earlier that also maybe didn't even exist or quite work out the way they wanted them to. And so the uh, Ostruppen Eastern troops were these SS recruited, they're like their own defectors, right? They became part of the, uh, the Waffen SS. So a lot of these jobs of these, like the Ostruppen, the, like I said, the Easterners were the dirty work that the Germans didn't want to do, which is digging trenches and moving stuff for mass killing, right? Mass killing their own people, in some cases anyway. And they were, once again, so these Ostruppen units that commanded these Eastern units, Nazi hierarchy, and then uh, Eastern people as the, the grunt work. And... Hitler didn't want like a super uh, anti-Stalin pro big Russian army because he didn't want eventually that to turn on him as well. Um, so you had a sort of like propaganda army because there was a lot of people that were taken over by the USSR that did not want to be part of that part of the Soviet bloc. You kind of have like this oh, anti-Stalin for the Germans working against Stalin from within Stalin's own country, right? Some of the people that were conscripted in order to be part of this Ostruppen Eastern unit. One of these guys, they talk about 
quote here because they wanted to have this Russian general who betrayed Russia and then he was eventually betrayed by Germany and he was captured by Russia again and then turned over to Russia. So they wanted to name this political army or this uh, Russian liberation movement after this guy named Andrei Vlasov. He was a general in the Red Army whom the generals had chosen to be the Crusades leader. been personally honored by Stalin in defense of Moscow and then he defected to the Nazis and then he later like betrayed the Nazis and then was captured by the Americans and then turned over to the Russians. And then after he was turned over to the Russians, if you betray Russia, you're not going to have a good time if you're turned back over to Russia. So you can kind of assume what happened to him. But before that, he was in charge of uh, you know, trying to get this resistance or anti-Stalin army involved. And he talks about some of the guys that were part of this unit, some of these people that were part of the Ostropin Eastern unit. Quote here, In reality, Vlasov's organization consisted in large of resigned veterans from some of the most depraved SS and security units of the Nazis' entire killing machine, regardless of Vlasov may have wanted. By 1945, about half of Vlasov's troops had been drawn from the SS commando Kaminsky, who had been earlier been led by a Belarusian collaborator, Branislav Kaminsky. Hitler wanted propaganda, anti-Stalin army, headed by Vlasov. Vlasov's unit is about a lot of these depraved veterans from the other side or you know, collaborators of in-between countries. His little blurb about these particular units. These troops are among the actual triggermen of the Holocaust and were particularly active in machine gun slings of civilians. Some of Kaminsky's men were also known to be titulated themselves by photographing naked Jewish women moments before murdering them. Some of the militiamen seemed to have enjoyed before and after pictures, for a number of such prints were later discovered on the bodies of fallen Kaminsky soldiers. The Germans, however, fearing that premature publicity might wreck their, quote, race and resettlement schemes, soon put an end to Kaminsky's picture-taking sessions, and it even talks about how this Kaminsky unit went on to quote, spearhead the bloody suppression of the heroic 1944 Warsaw Ghetto Rebellion with such bestial violence that even the German general Hans Guderian was appalled and called for the removal from the field. So this particular unit was being shuffled around under this Russian, which is still being dictated around by Nazis. So they folded this troop into, with other Russian turncoats, into this Vlasov army, which we'll kind of hear a lot more of this Vlasov army, even though I feel like it'd even be 10 years after this war is definitely over, but they're still using this kind of like network of people that were there to just, you know, cause trouble. And it talks about when you're working in intelligence, political attacks, political warfare, which is building up the pressures inside of the country that you're trying to attack, right? So if you have all these crazy militant extremist murderers, pay them a bunch of money, right? And they'll pretty much do whatever you want them to do. A lot of these countries in between, like Germany and Russia, had always just been under the sway of bigger nations around, but uh, with the fall of the, the Tsarist Russia, you had a lot of groups that tried to make a break for independence, essentially, right? Because you don't have the big iron fist over you now that it's gone. Your country can kind of try to be its own thing now again. And so the Germans were trying to use a lot of this natural hostility to the Stalin's Russia in particular. And a lot of these people were also anti-Bolshevik, so anti-communist, so Germans are hiring other Eastern European people, and if they actually got the ones that were anti-Bolshevik, particular ones that were anti-communist, right, because a lot of these people were in these groups that they got were, I mentioned earlier, Russian POWs who were kind of like turned over. 
uh, and had to fight for them. Or, like I said, these anti-communist people who are just really fired and passionate up and kind of see that these anti-communist people are particularly nasty, ex- even especially to their own people for not following their own I- ideology in some cases. And it talks about how the Germans got a lot of their information because that's how a lot of this intel's uh, started is you have all these POWs and they were talking, combing out information from these people and how the efficiency of these units about how they were able to separate all these Jews from the Russians and just say, oh, if it's a Jew, just just kill him and then anybody else they needed information from to be shuffled along to some other, especially because they were hiring the local people to weed them out, right? You can't just have a German come up and be like, hmm, what are you? They need someone else of the area to spot their dialect or to spot, like, their habits or their customs and be like, oh, well, no, he's from here and he's sort of this distinctive. He's wearing that, so he's probably that. The Germans, once again, utilizing a lot of this. The natives work against their own country and how they would do that. And then a lot in these cases is that as soon as they got whatever information they wanted out of you, people are going to die. They have all these translators asking ask them questions, comb them out, Jew. Jew, not Jew, or Intel, or not Intel. No matter what, for the most part, that and that was what the book was wondering is like, are these translators war criminals? Like, they definitely knew what was going on. That if they translate or like point fingers, that people are gonna die. If you're kind of being forced to it, like, are you gonna die? Your full family gonna be tortured to death if you don't follow along? If you can speak, you know, two languages, essentially. Tough line about trying to correctly point the finger. You are responsible for these people's deaths, essentially. This particular war criminal specialist, Waldemar von Radetzky, but admitted that the translation functions they would be admitting that they knew of executions would be followed certain investigations. Otto Ollendorf, a commander of one of the Eitzengruppen units at the Nuremberg trial, had this to say about the process of having these POW or civilian prisoners intel opportunities essentially that came in and quote the army units had to sort out political commissars and other undesirable elements themselves Uh, that means the native collaborators that they used as translators to parse through who is or i rather say comb through who's useful or not useful and then quote hand them over to the eitzengruppen to be killed and these killing units were really extremely brutal and there's a quote here about Lithuania and the squads that were used there. Quote, in Lithuania, municipal killing squads employing Lithuanian Nazi collaborators eliminated 46,692 Jews in fewer than three months, according to their own report, mainly by combining clockwork liquidation of 500 Jews per day in the capital city of Vilnius with mobile cleanup sweeps through the surrounding countryside. And I said it was like machinery, 500 people per day. Sounds like a quota, but I mean, it is a quota, but once again, a a quota for people being used and discarded as if they're not worth full human being lives. And I'm going to end with this just this last paragraph. Quote, such squads were consistently used by the Nazis for the dirty work that even the SS believed to be beneath the dignity of the German soldier. In the Ukraine, for example, Eitzen Commando 4A went so far as to confine itself to the shooting of adults while commanding its Ukrainian shoot helpers to shoot the children. Hilberg reports, we were actually frightened. Remember Ernest Bill Bernstein?
chief, I've it's Commando Six, by the bloodthirstiness of these people. So in this episode, we kind of see where some of the later Intel networks that Reinhard Galen uses bargaining chips to secure his release and freedom. Some of these Ites and Commandos that were left behind are the reactionary anti-communist intel groups that were also there or the integrators of the POWs and how the media or the United States media specifically too not just in Europe but also the United States media how they were able to cover some of this up and some of the people we got some trickling of some names but we're going to expand on those names Reinhard Galen the ex-Nazi spy chief Alan Dulles, second director of the CIA, master spy, chief master of the OSS during World War II. George F. Kennan, ambassador to Russia. And next time it won't be about Nazis that were leaders of killing squads, but rather scientists and engineers, men who you'd think would be pillars of society, all for betterment of humanity, but work around the clock to make weapons that enslave many other people at the same time and work them to death. And we'll also learn a lot more about Reinhard Galen, the ex-Nazi spy chief, how he bargained his way to being put back in Germany. And the kind of people that he helped to get off and back into positions of power as well. And how his intel networks, remember the Velasov army that we talked about, will affect the Cold War and future relations between the United States and Russia.